Hello and good evening, everybody. It's so nice to see everyone here uh, with us tonight. Uh, my name is Andrea Scobie. I'm the Director of Education with Detroit Opera. Oh, Hi, and I'm Arthur White. Sorry about that. Director of External Affairs, not paying attention to my colleague. Good evening. We are so uh, grateful that you all are here. Uh, you know, it's been 11 years since we've done an opera, mounted production uh, back from the Baroque period. So I imagine there might be a few of you uh, who probably have not seen uh, an opera, a Baroque opera, on the stage before live. So tonight, we are very excited. 11 years. Uh, and so, I don't know if you want to say anything before I start jumping into to handle. No, just, we're just not a bit. Excited that you're here. We're very glad that you're here. We have a couple of special guests who are going to join us for this talk tonight. You get two guests for the price of one this <laughs> evening, uh, which is something a little bit special. But Arthur's going to talk a little bit about our composer and the context of the piece. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the history, um, and then we're going to welcome two guests to come and speak with us. So thank you all so much for taking the time to come early and uh, dive into Xerxes. Indeed. Now you know when we think of Handel, we mostly think of the sacred works, right? Uh, we just had. Christmas a couple of months ago, we think of, you know, the Messiah and some of his oratorios like Semele and Samson, some of his organ works. Uh, people are surprised to learn that Handel was the most prolific Italian operatic composer during the Baroque period. Uh, now, he is uh, born, uh, George Friedrich Handel, of course, a German-British uh, composer. He was born near Halle, uh, which is right near Leipzig in central Germany. Interestingly enough, he's born the same year as Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, and so it's funny, they both musically took completely different roads, but today now, we only think of them both as uh, for their sacred works. Uh, Handel showed great music, musical talent early on. He's given a music teacher by his father, the only teacher that he'll have. Uh, he completes his studies at the University of Halle in, in 1706 at the age of 21. Uh, he's invited by the Medici family in Florence, that's where the head of all music is happening in Italy, uh, where he writes several of his well-received operas, one of them Agrippina in 1709. In 1711, at 26, he visits England and gains patronage with several commissions, uh, including music for King George II's coronation. And over the next 20 years, Handel is riding high. He starts three opera companies. There is a huge demand uh, amongst the aristocracy for Italian opera, and he is happy to oblige. Uh, he premieres over 40 operas during this time. Uh, he even becomes a naturalized British subject in 1727. Now, during this time, of course, also, uh, the rage taking all of all, uh, over all the opera stages and concert stages, that of the castrato. You guys know what that is, right? Uh, and so that's usually, a, uh, that's a, not usually, that is, uh, was a male of the singing uh, who had a voice equivalent to that of a soprano, mezzo-soprano, or contralto. So if a boy had a particularly beautiful voice or particularly a great musical talent, uh, that could be preserved for the rest of his life uh, through castration uh, if the boy, if it happened sometime usually between eight uh, and 10 years of age before he hits puberty. Uh, and so this was, of course, a very common practice in the 16th century with the Catholic Church. They had to fill a lot of uh, boy sopranos and altos in those churches. Uh, but by the 18th century, the castrato has conquered now the operatic stage. And an Italian opera, with, we're not featuring at least one castrato in the first one or two roles, would be considered automatically 
of failure. Now, by the mid-1730s, Italian opera in England is starting to sort of become less popular, as well as, uh, you know, the castrati. And so Handel loses some financial backing from the king. Uh, that's in 1736. And he begins to struggle financially. Uh, the following year, uh, he is 54, and he has a stroke, uh, which paralyzes him on his right side, his complete right side. He takes off uh, a couple of months to recover. Uh, and it is that time that he sits down to pen the opera that you're going to hear tonight, Xerxes. Now, he's hoping that this is going to be the cash cow. This is going to be the opera that's going to pull him out of his financial troubles. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't quite happen that way. Unfortunately, the music is glorious. Everyone, by everyone's account, the music was fantastic. You're going to hear it pretty soon. Uh, the problem was, in those days, opera was usually one of two things. What we call opera seria, uh, which usually you know, serious subjects, or it was buffa, like a comedy. Right? We might think of, say, Bohem as a seria, and maybe uh, the Barber of Seville as a buffa. Well, in those days, it was one or the other. Well, this opera combined them both, and the public didn't quite know what to make of that. They thought, we don't get this, uh, and so they kind of stayed away from this production. I'd Oddly enough, though, you know, just 40 years later, when we hit the classical period with Mozart, he does this all the time to great success. Those of you who know Don Giovanni, uh, the style is called uh, Drama Giocosa, which is drama with jokes. And so you, you hear that in so many of his operas. But anyway, so Handel was a bit, uh, he was early, he was 40 years uh, too early at this particular time. Uh, and so he, he ends up leaving opera altogether uh, two years later uh, in 1741. He dedicates himself then uh, to the sacred works that we pretty much remember him now for. Uh, what else can I tell you? Uh, let's see. Uh, I, I can tell you, just have a, have a few more months. Uh, by the 19th century, uh, of course, social attitudes start to change with the castrati. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the last known castrato, his name is Alessandro Moreschi. So if you're home bouncing around tonight, twiddling your thumbs with nothing to do, go on YouTube and you get to hear there's a recording of the last true uh, castrato, Alessandro Moreschi, uh, on YouTube. It was a recording. He worked uh, at the Sistine Chapel Choir. That's where he sang. Uh, and in 1904, someone I guess, had a recording device at a particular service he was singing at, and so his voice has been captured. Of course, 1904, of course, is not the, uh, we don't have the, digital have the digital recordings we have now, but you have a good sense, or some kind of a sense, of what a real castrato would have sounded like. So when you get home tonight, Alessandro Moresio, just think of the last, uh, the last castrato, and you'll be able to pull it up. All right? Uh, should I talk to you? I actually tell you, this is the most important thing. So those castrati roles, of course, we've you know, let, go, let go of that practice. Uh, and so now the castrati roles are taken up by countertenors. These are, these are men uh, who, of course, do go through puberty, uh, but they've developed a great sense, a highly sense of their head voice uh, to the point of operatic proportion. And we're going to hear uh, one of the most famous ones uh, tonight uh, in Kimon Moore, who is the star of Xerxes. And I'm so excited. Uh, we had a chance. He was a guest on our podcast, and he was just fantastic. Uh, and of course, I was able to sneak in and hear a little bit of rehearsal. And you, you just, you're not going to believe it when this man steps out on the stage tonight. So I think I'll stop there because I'm taking all of our time. <laughs> okay, <laughs> no, thank that's you. all right. Thank you. It's going to be such a treat tonight to hear these voices. I really can't wait to get there. Um, but before we do, I want to talk a little bit about um, the the real person who is at the center of this opera this evening. So the story we're seeing tonight is very loosely based on the life of a real person, and I do mean loosely based. Um, but his life was filled with drama and battle and un 
unmitigated ego, um, and so I think it's a story worth telling a little bit right now. So the real-life Xerxes has fascinated historians, authors, artists throughout the centuries. Um, he was known as Xerxes I, or Xerxes the Great, uh, born circa 1519 BC in modern-day Iran. Um, in fact, the name Xerxes that we know him by is the Greek version of his name. His name in Persian would have been uh, Kashayar, but we know him as Xerxes. Um, he was the son of the ruler Darius the Great, and his wife Atossa, who was the daughter of Cyrus the Great, who was said to have founded the Persian Empire. Now, Xerxes was named heir by his father, despite the fact that he had three older brothers. This is a really interesting thing. Uh, but those brothers were born to Darius by a different wife. Um, and Xerxes was the first son born to Darius at the time he ascended to his kingdom. So Xerxes was the first son born kind of under the purple or once his father was royal. Um, so his father said that that gave him the right to rule, that any sons born when Darius was a commoner were commoners themselves, but Xerxes had the royal ruling. Uh, but a lot of modern scholars say that he really just did that to flaunt his connection to Atossa, his wife and Xerxes' mother, who again had this connection uh, to Cyrus the Great, who was a great leader in his day. Um, so we don't know much about Xerxes' specific childhood or education, but we do knew that, know that children of the Persian nobility would have been educated at court. They would have been educated by eunuchs um, in things like archery or in hunting. He would not have been taught to read and write. That was something that was relegated to specialists um, or advisors at the court that was not seen as the purview of royals. Um, so at the time Xerxes became king, the Persian Empire was at its height. Um, Rule was established from India and Central Asia through North Africa to the eastern shores of the Mediterranean. And Xerxes' father wanted to conquer Greece. He really was into uh, expanding his empire to this empire building, but he was defeated at the Battle of Marathon. So when Xerxes uh, ascended the throne, he was determined to fulfill his father's wishes. Um, and he invaded Greece in 480 BCE with, according to the Greek historian Herodotus, the largest and most well-equipped fighting force that had ever been assembled to that point. But first, in order to get there, in order to cr uh, cross over to Greece, they first had to cross the Dardanelles Strait, which was then known as Hellespont. Now, uh, history tells us that Xerxes ordered two bridges built across the water. If you think about the preparation for this campaign, this is huge. So he had these two bridges built, uh, but when the army was about to cross over, a huge storm swept up and destroyed the bridges entirely, washed them out. And now legend says that Xerxes was so angry about this that he ordered the bridges builders to be executed. Um, and he ordered his men to deliver 300 lashes to the water itself um, and to drop a pair of manacles into the sea to symbolize the seas, the water submission to his rule. So again, remember, we talked about that ego. I think we might, we might see it there a little bit. Uh, but eventually, the bridges were rebuilt. Xerxes' troops crossed into Greece. And after all of this time, they were ultimately defeated by the Greeks. Um, time would pass. Xerxes was later uh, murdered by a member of, of his court who was looking to his, uh, usurp power. Um, and in the great uh, histories of Alexander the Great, uh, again of Herodotus and of the Greek playwright Aeschylus, um, Xerxes has been seen through history as a villain who was brought down by his own pride and arrogance. Um, so that's kind of the lasting legacy that we have of Xerxes today. Um, but his story isn't just confined to history books. He's been the subject of multiple operas, uh, not just the opera we'll see tonight by Handel. Um, his exploits figure into Aeschylus's play, The Persians. Um, he appears in the Chaminet, or the Book of Kings, which is an epic poem composed in in the 11th century, which details the history and the legends of Persia. Um, he's the subject of novels by authors from Gore Vidal to the graphic novelist Frank Miller, um, who wrote a piece on Xerxes that's been adapted to film. If you've ever seen the film 300, um, we know that Xerxes figures there. Um, we've also seen him in uh, video games, so no matter what your sort of mode of entertainment is, the Xerxes 
Chinese story has managed to find itself into a lot of the legends um, and the tales that we still tell today in media. And today we get to tell it again. So I know we're running short on time. We want to get to our guests. But in two or three sentences, Arthur, speaking of that story of Xerxes, what is the story that we'll see tonight? Indeed. So we know we're set in Persia in 470 BC. Uh, Xerxes is engaged to Amastre, uh, but he's in love with Romilda. But Romilda doesn't love him. Romilda loves his brother. And so you can imagine the king is not happy about that. If anyone, she should be going for the king, not my brother. So he needs to get the brother out of the way uh, so that he can have Romilda all for himself. So you'll see the rest of that play out uh, over the next two hours. Uh, but I guess we should probably uh, invite our next, our Absolutely. guest up, our special guest up. Um, we uh, had a new, uh, sorry. We have a new music director as of November of 22, a Mexican-American conductor who's established himself uh, as a great artist of great versatility, uh, and he's known for his dynamic and sensitive conducting. He's our new music director, Mr. Roberto Cao. Here he is. Thank you so much, Roberto. <laughs> Sir, thank you. Thank you for being here. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Okay. Hello. Hi, everyone. Good to see you. <laughs> I hope I, I think I see some returnees from the AIDA concert, so that's good to see. Uh, I'm supposed to be the warm-up act this evening, <laughs> not to give a lot of information. However, I was sitting there and I just thought of a few things that I, I should share with you. If you're regular opera goers and you have come to this beautiful opera house often, you will notice that the pit is a little bit raised, uh, actually quite substantially. So, and we do that because it's a smaller uh, orchestra and you'll get uh, the opportunity to, to witness the players playing and to hear them a little bit more. So that's, that's why the pit is a little bit raised, if you were wondering. And you might hear some instruments that you don't normally hear. So we have two harpsichords. Uh, Dame Jane Glover is playing some of the recitatives and switching off between uh, our other harpsichord player and then the other harpsichord player will play with the, when the orchestra and, and she's conducting. And there's also another instrument which you might not have heard of called the theorbo. And the theorbo is basically like a, a large guitar and it also acts as part of that continual group of players that, that um, sort of, uh, they, don't, they have guidance of what to play in the score, the chords, but they can improvise freely in between. In that way, it's kind of like jazz. It's very cool to, to witness a Baroque opera. So something to listen for is that usually in Baroque arias, you have an A form, a B form, and so the aria has A, B, A. You have a melody, then you have a different melody, and then the first melody comes back, and the singers get the opportunity to flourish the original melody. So when you're sitting, listening, just keep an ear out for how the singers are varying that original Okay, so now the warm-up act. Okay. The cast is out of this world. So maybe I should have set the bar very low so that you would, <laughs> but I'm going to set the bar very high and they're going to meet it and surpass it because it's truly incredible. I'm going to share a few anecdotes. I don't, oh, James is already there. Okay, I'll, I'll be brief. Uh, so we have a wonderful bass baritone, Michael Sumiel, singing El Viro. Um, I, for me, it's kind of like a, it's a, a, a Ferrari when a Toyota would have been really good, you know? Oh. But we have, he, it's, it's a small, uh, smaller role, but he is such an incredible singer and an incredible actor. I can't wait for you to see and hear him. Um, Nicholas Newton singing Ariodate. So, very brief story. Uh, when I was resident conductor of Opera Theater of St. Louis, we had young artist auditions, and Nick Newton walked into the room to sing for a young artist spot. 
we, he opened his mouth and I turned to my colleagues and we hired him for a main stage role because he was so fantastic. He's an incredible singer. Um, Liz Sutphen, also from the OTSL days. My first year in Opera Theatre St. Louis, it was her first year at Opera Theatre St. Louis. And she had, is really an incredible singing actress. She will steal your hearts, your laughs, and has an incredible high range. I would keep special attention to her ornaments when the arias go back to that A section. She does some crazy things that are very, very high. You'll see, you'll hear, actually. Uh, Vanessa Caridi is Amastre. This is a very interesting role. Uh, it requires a great deal of um, versatility and elasticity and coloratura and also volume, and she does a beautiful, beautiful job. Um, Sunli Pierce, uh, Arsamene. Sunli is, I would say, the most exciting young lyric mezzo. Uh, out there, and she just uh, sung a main role in Houston Grand Opera with my wife, and she was amazing. Okay, and then we have Lauren Snowfer as Romilda. Lauren is uh, an amazing musician with a crystalline voice, and uh, you know those singers that can stop time. You know, you sit and time just completely stops when she sings. It's incredibly beautiful and very musical, and. Okay, last but not least, I have another anecdote. I'm full of these anecdotes. When you're in the business long enough, you know you know everyone, right? So, Kiman Mara, I was judging a Met District competition in Lexington, Kentucky in 2018. And Kiman came on stage, and it was the most incredible raw talent I had ever heard. It was just so amazing. And a little bit raw, you know, he was, he was younger and a little less experienced. And we had that little session that we have with all those contestants where we give them feedback and advice. And he sent me this beautiful email a week later that said, I thank you for the encouragement award. We gave him an encouragement award. Thank you so much for this encouragement. I'm going to take every single thing you told me in my session and I'm gonna work on it daily. And really, he did. He, it, it, he is a real, uh, an artist of true integrity, and the vocal talent is just out of this world. We just premiered together Gabby Lena Frank's uh, opera uh, in, uh, in San Diego, and that was beautiful, and this is just spectacular. The range that he has, the ability to do coloratura, pianissimos. You'll see the first thing he sings is the most famous aria in the whole opera. Very soft, and then Towards the end of the act, you'll see that he goes on in the rage arias. He can just sing coloratura like no one else. And he has a top that most sopranos would be very jealous of. <laughs> so I just can't wait for you to watch it. And of course, I, I'm, I'm neglecting to say one more thing. We have Dame Jane Glover conducting. Uh, she's you know, a living legend. Uh, and it's been fantastic for these wonderful musicians to work with her. And another person that... I also feel like very proud of because another Opera Theater of St. Louis person that we worked together in 2016, I was the assistant conductor. Well, I won't tell you the nitty gritty. Maybe after a glass of wine, you'll ask me. <laughs> tell them. And, and James was the assistant director. It was a, kind of a funky production. Um, and just to see him come into his own and direct this show so beautifully, I'm, I'm really super proud of my colleague. So I want to introduce James Blasco. Okay. Thank, thank you, you so much, Maestro. Thank you, Robert. Maestro, thank you, thank you. Mm -hmm.
Actually, while he's making his way, uh, uh, James uh, is the revival director, and he's returning to Detroit. He did some work on our Bohem when we first got back into the house after two years of, of, of no performances of the pandemic. He also worked on Sweeney Todd for those. You remember that production back in 2019. Uh, he was our pre-opera uh, talk guest, and he was so fantastic. So we are thrilled that he is back today. Thank you so much, James. James Thank Blasco. You. Thank Hi, you. everybody. How are you doing? <laughs> It's so good to have you back, James. Now, I want to start by asking, so you are the revival director for this production of Xerxes. Um, stage director Taswell Thompson originated this at Glimmerglass in 2017. Um, what does it mean for a revival director to remount a production that has already premiered but now is brought to a new city and perhaps with a new cast? Yeah, well, this is a totally new cast. So it's, it's a wholly new group of people approaching the work. Um, actually, I don't think there is a single person from that original production who was in-house working on it, but we did receive our blessing from everybody who did it originally. Um, and yeah, revivals can be, I mean, they can go many ways, and ultimately, you know, as artists, you kind of just work on a case-by-case -case basis, because if you try to standardize anything, you kind of lose opportunity for discovery. So, you know, Taswell and I uh, both come from a, a theatrical background and found our way into opera with our, you know, kind of acumen towards music. And so, uh, in this production, you will see the essence of it being his, the, the way that he interpreted with the set designer, John Conklin, the design of the space, which you'll see is quite abstract, um, which is can be a little bit different for a piece like this. Um, you know, that was his initial design, that was his initial wish, and um, the spirit of the show is really, uh, I think I've done a decent job of maintaining, <laughs> um, which is, decent, you know, yeah. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> um, but which is that, you know, this, this show really plays out like a Shakespearean play. There are a lot of, uh, you know, immediate references to things like, you know, like Twelfth Night and As You Like It, and, and the scenes move very quickly, um, uh, you know, in the midst of these gorgeous arias that do stop time. And, um, you know, Taswell really wanted, at Glimmerglass, which if you have not been, is a much smaller theater than this one, um, wanted to maintain this sense of intimacy, the sense of, you know, all the world's a stage, you're the audience, but we're, and we're the actors, but we're all telling the story together, that kind of communal energy, um, so there really isn't like a fourth wall that you're peeking through. He wanted to maintain that with this production, and so you'll see um, in, in uh, my honoring of that, you will see the characters sometimes coming into the audience. You'll see people singing directly at you. That, that sort of essence of the work is, is what was Taswell's original vision um, and that I did choose to maintain. But being the theater makers that we are, we understand that it's not just about us telling actors what to do, but it's about pulling from the natural essence of each actor and making sure that they shine because that's really what you know, that's what a handle would have wanted. He brought all these people in from Italy to London and said, hey, these are superstars, come hear them sing. And he put show after show with the same singers performing all these different roles. So in a lot of ways, the audience was coming to see the singer shine more so than the plot. They're like, oh yeah, here's another plot about something in Persia. Anyway, you know, <laughs> I wanna hear Kazoni, you know. <laughs> so, so, the, so there are a lot of differences in that regard with this production. I really took from each of these singers' natural essences and made sure we, we honed in on that so we weren't, you know, fitting a, 
what's the what's the phrase a square into the hole or whatever you know <laughs> so you mentioned uh, Taswell uh, Thompson you guys all probably know that name uh, he was the librettist for the opera blue we did last season which was so beautifully uh, received he had done I believe he directed uh, Porgy and Bess and I think of you from the bridge as I recall uh, in the past but you know he did this production six years ago now we're like post pandemic when you brought it here were there things that you thought you know maybe we should look at this or relook at this or change that was were you able to yeah, put your own stamp I mean, on, on I mean on I wouldn't it. say it was in relationship to the pandemic Pandemic, really, but I think it's just in relationship to the performers because they, they just bring a completely different energy. Um, everyone brings their own thing to the show. Um, there were some scenic elements and things like that, that talking to the set designer, John Conklin, who did the Bohem set, so I already had a good like working relationship with him. Um, we were having uh, dinner in New York and he was telling me, you know, it was an abstracted piece. We weren't 100% sold on all the choices we made on where things went, so have at it. Try to propose some things. And I think that is probably, for me, the biggest shift um, visually that you'll see, is that there were just some uh, images and pieces of architecture that you'll see coming in and out that were sort of adjusted on my end. But all in service to the story for me. I was going to say, uh, you know, often when you look put back one of these masterpieces in the past. They've often been revised. I know there's been some, uh, there was particular decisions made on this particular production. Like for example, I think there's no chorus. Can you talk to us about maybe some of the decisions and to bring yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and it kind of ties into your revival question. There was a bit of a template. You know, Xerxes traditionally does have a full chorus, and the Glimmerglass production did not, so we honored that and, and did not have a bunch of costumes for choristers. Um, but, uh, but the cuts, you know, Taswell was open to Jane and I looking back at them and seeing, you know, are they necessary? Is it additive to the story to, you know, lose this? Or, or does it, is it important to keep it? Um, and so Jane and I actually spent several hours um, just kind of rummaging through <laughs> the cuts that existed at Glimmer Glass and the music that we knew in full and just trying to decide what worked and what didn't. Um, and, and that process was actually really interesting. So there are a few arias, if, I don't, if you happen to see that Glimmer Glass production, there are some, a few arias that are added in this production. Um, although somehow the runtime is the same because our scenes move at such a quick pace, which Jane and I were really adamant about you know, maintaining. So uh, there's some additions and changes and things like that, but I think really in service to keeping it just as essential as possible. Seven singers, a really, uh, wacky storyline bringing you through love and hate <laughs> um, in an abstract world. Thank you. You know, um, Roberta was telling us a little bit about Dame Jane Glover. Of course, you can read her program note as well. She is uh, an expert in handle and a living legend. I wonder if you can talk about your partnership with her on this piece as stage director and conductor. Um, what was that like? What was the give and take? Um, what was that collaboration like? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, what a blessing, especially as someone kind of stepping into his own right as a director now from the associate life I was doing here last, uh, to learn about Handel through her book. I mean, she wrote the book on Handel, and so I had the, the, the privilege to read through that and really be inspired by his story through her eyes. So we were already working from a similar place because I was learning from her. Um, and so, you know, at first that could be a little daunting when you're working with, first of all, a dame, but also, you know, someone who, who clearly has decades of work that I have yet to embark on. And so um, we, uh, you know, we got on our Zoom, as we do these days, <laughs> and talked through the story. And what we realized is that the, at the heart, both of us aligned so clearly on wanting to do service to this story as a play. 
because that's what these little recits in between the arias is all about, is about telling a story just as if you were speaking it. And so we found so many more similarities than I think either of us really anticipated when we first started working together. And it resulted in this unbelievable collaboration in the room where neither of us, we both felt very brave to state our opinions and not fear any sort of, you know, <laughs> argument because the creative friction is necessary to, to make work. You have to kind of wrestle with ideas and, and find, identify the best idea in the room. And I was really, really, um, I was really honored to, to share that experience with her and, and be able to do that without any sort of fear of, you know, disrupting the higher order, you know, as, as one some might would with Musia Dame or, you know, someone that's much experience. I will. Well, we're, it's hard to believe that we're almost out of time. Both of our guests tonight, thank you so much for uh, coming and speaking with us. Um, you know, James Roberto talked a little bit about what we can listen for in the music, some of the instruments that we'll hear. I wonder if in our last moments you can tell us, is there a scene or a moment in this opera that you would really have audiences pay special or particular mm. attention to that might jump out? Well, actually, I, I'm, I won't see a scene in particular, but I do want to just mention this idea of the visual world because I think because it's so abstract, um, it, it takes, and we move through the plot so quick, um, it might be useful to know sort of the, the origin of it, um, which is, as you'll see in the space, it's all about nature. Ombra Mai Fu is, of course, a love song to a tree. Um, and, and, <laughs> and, and it's funny, but to me it actually is the, it, it, it was such a clear indicator to me of, the, oh, that's what the show is about. Here is this king who appreciates nature. He loves this beautiful tree. He doesn't want anything to disrupt it, not any wind or rain or anything. And then he goes on and spends the whole show trying to disrupt everybody else's natural order so <laughs> so you know and then by the end of it he really he gets got you know what I mean so like this you'll see in the in the set that we start in this very kind of clear symmetrical world um, and as Arsamene says to to Romilda when he fears that she may be shaken by his demands uh, she says and actually this is a line to look out for in, the, in one of the first scenes um, Arsamene says well you know even the biggest uh, oak can crack underneath an earthquake um, and and that, that was the driving line um, for our show in terms of my impression of this production. And so you will see that earthquake manifest in the design. So I, I'll say keep an eye out for that because that's kind of a, a visual through line that really excited me about this production. Well, our revival director, Mr. James Blasco, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So thank happy you. To be we're, here. We're, just, we're just out of time. I know you're going to enjoy the performance. Thank you all so much for being here. Enjoy the show. Thank you all. <laughs>